Hi, I'm F. Paul Driscoll, Editor-in-Chief of Opera News. Please join us for the next event in our fascinating live interview series, The Singer Studio. On Wednesday, November 14th, we will be joined by American bass baritone Christian Van Horn. The interview begins at 6 p.m. at the Samuel B. and David Rose Building at Lincoln Center. For tickets, visit opernews.com slash singerstudio or call 212-769-7028. See you there. In 1961, a novel by Winston Graham swept the literary world, a thrilling tale of deceit, blackmail, and psychological trauma. Alfred Hitchcock turned it into a film in 1964, and now a new operatic version of the story is coming to the Met for the first time this season. Who is this dangerous femme fatale, the title character? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Marnie is the gripping thriller now taking the stage at the Met, composed by Nico Muley with a libretto by Nicholas Wright. Isabel Leonard stars as the title character in an alluring production by Tony Award-winning stage director Michael Mayer. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Williams College music professor W. Anthony Shepard explores the music and drama of this newly composed work. As you know, this opera is based more directly on the 1961 novel by Winston Graham. Graham's story is fueled in large part by the general mid-20th century popular acceptance and interest in Freudian psychology. The novel reminds me very much of the 1941 musical and 1944 film Lady in the Dark by Kurt Weill, Ira Gershwin, and Moss Hart. I see Moss Hart's name on that poster reminded me of this work. But both focus, both Lady in the Dark and um, Marnie, focus on the office space in the mid-20th century as an erotic zone in which a strong female professional is framed as sexually repressed due to a childhood trauma. In 2018, however, the story takes on a new meaning, I suspect, in the context of Me Too. Rather than focusing on Graham's Freudian take on childhood trauma and on Marnie's mother, I suspect that we are much more apt to identify the workplace sexual harassment that Marnie encounters serially as the impetus for her crimes and her striking identity transformations. Now, as we follow Marnie's tale in the opera, we're going to need to determine to what extent does she remain consistent and identifiable in Muley's score versus to what extent does she undergo musical metamorphosis with each name, hair color, and career change. Basing new operas on films is a cardinal feature of all, many contemporary operas. However, Muley has distanced his opera from Hitchcock's famous 1961 cinematic version of the tale. He felt Graham's story had lost its subtleties and nuances and that his opera would put them back in. 
I do find, however, a few connections between film and this opera. For example, at several points, the opera cuts between scenes, leaping immediately from one setting to the next, as occurs in film. This occurs, for instance, in scene seven, between scenes seven and eight in act two, as we immediately cut without any transition or any pause from Marnie attempting to rob the Rutland safe to her mother's funeral. In addition, though Muley has distanced himself from the film and from the soundtrack, there is a parallel in the musically ominous mood setting in Hermann's film score for Hitchcock's movie and Muley's opera, and a similar use of big romantic dramatic gestures at key points in the drama. Perhaps the most important influence on the mood and general aesthetic of Muley's opera is Claude Debussy's 1902 opera, Peleas et Melisande. Muley has said that the story of Marnie reminded him of the Debussy opera in its, quote, intense emotional ambiguity. He's aiming for ambiguity in this opera. In both tales, the Debussy and the Muley, a mysterious and ambiguous woman has apparently had some kind of traumatic past and becomes a reluctant wife. The similarities are apparent in the libretti of both operas, as characters talk past each other, engaging in deflections, not answering each other's questions. The verbal and vocal style also recall Debussy's opera and Janacek's operas as well, as the libretto consists primarily of very short sentences and the text setting is primarily syllabic, parlando vein or speaking style remaining closer to the rhythms of speech. Composers throughout operatic history have pursued this style whenever they wish to aim for depictions of reality. Muley stated in the performance notes to the score of Two Boys, his previous opera, that, quote, my aim is a verisimilitude of conversational speech. And for much of Marnie, the same aim must have been true. With Marnie, the question of reality and verisimilitude are clearly central. To what extent does Muley musically characterize Marnie as a shapeshifter as she moves through her story? To what extent does his music indicate some core Marniness about her, despite her various disguises? Can we hear Marnie no matter what she looks like on stage? Well, in all three of his operas, Muley employs traditional techniques for musical characterization, techniques that go back to Monteverdi creating symbolic and associative pitches between the character and a particular key or a particular pitch, setting up instrument associations with specific characters, deploying dissonance um, for tension and distress, emotional anxiety, and highlighting certain crucial words with melismas, multiple notes per syllable, or register, high versus low. The first thing to note about Marnie, the operatic Marnie, is that she's a mezzo. I once knew a mezzo who always complained to me that the only parts she got to play were witches, bitches, and boys, which, if you think about it, is pretty true. In Marnie's case, she is a bit witch-like in her criminality and in leading Mark toward ruin. Not quite a Carmen Don Jose situation, but similar. She can certainly be a prickly character, and in terms of Graham's, Winston Graham's story, is somewhat ambiguous in her sexual sexuality, or at least her sexual preference. 
The mezzo voice is also appropriate for Marnie in that she is a liminal figure caught between society's expectations. She can't or she won't conform to these expectations as a mid-20th century woman. If she were a soprano, and if Mark were a tenor, I feel that the conventions of opera would have kicked in and would have compelled them to sing a love duet. Instead, as we will find, the ending is far more ambiguous. Muley has indicated that each principal character in the opera is twinned with or associated with a solo instrument in the orchestra. This allows an instrument to reveal something about a character or their thoughts, even when that character's vocal melody and style seems to express the opposite, or even when they're silent, or even when they seem to be trying to cover up their thoughts. For instance, Marnie's mother is signaled by a solo viola, often playing in an old 17th century style. Mark is marked by the trombone, and Terry less clearly or consistently by the trumpet. Marnie is rather closely associated with the oboe, a woodwind instrument that in its register and timbre is somehow between. It's located between the flute, stereotypically feminine, and maybe the bassoon. This is made particularly clear at the end of scene one um, as the oboe has a huge solo and it floats above some very low register material. At this point, the oboe seems to express what Marnie is leaving unsaid. This is the end of act one, scene one. Huge low register, ominous growling. Marnie's oboe floating above. first measure of the opera consists of that solo oboe playing a C. So the very first sound you hear in the opera is the oboe playing a C. Just as the oboe is associated with Marnie, I find that the pitch C itself takes on symbolic associations with her. And I am now going through a long mind-numbing list of examples to prove to you that the pitch C is connected with Marnie. Example one, she's singing this. This is the kill the hunter carries home. Um, and this is the moment, uh, this, the first time we see her, theft, okay, at the office. And if you notice, so on carries, re's home, we have this intensely dissonant interval. 
I will tell you, all you music theory buffs, that this is the worst interval you could possibly give a singer. It is the tritone, the devil's interval from medieval music theory. Um, so we get a tritone on Re's home, home, and then another tritone on home. But when she carries us all the way home, she arrives on C. And we're going to find throughout the opera, when she talks about running away and getting somewhere and I'm finally here, she lands on the pitch C. But if you don't believe me, ask the little boy. An example two, uh, the little boy who serves as a companion to Marnie's mother, um, first Marnie says, hello, and the little boy says, are you Marnie on the pitch C? Well, Marnie doesn't like to give away her identity, so she avoids pitch C. If you notice, D, A, D, D, B flat, B flat, all around pitch C, Ds and B flats. She does that throughout the opera when she's trying to hide her identity, which I think is pretty cool. In example number three, she has this big aria-like moment when she's talking about identity. It's kind of a very philosophical moment. Nobody knows who you, anyone really is, right? Or another excerpt. Or are you the same person or the man for the man of your dreams? Are you the same person for the boy at the bus stop? Do you change from day to day? In lots of these ex excerpts from um, this big number, you'll notice that she keeps avoiding C. So lots of D sharps. And then she sings a C sharp and a D, but not around C. Um, again, um, when thinking about does the man of your what, who does the man of your dreams think you are, or what about the boy at the bus stop, right? C sharp D, but not C. But then finally, when she sings, after all this ambiguity about who am I, who is anybody, how do you know who you are? When she finally decides, I am going to do something, I could walk out the door right now. I could walk out the door right now. She sings what? Lots of C's. I could walk out that door right now. And then she lands on C at the end of the phrase. Right now. And I could give you more examples. Maybe I will. So here, example four. She says, um, this huge melisma, when she defines herself, she sings on this huge melisma, I'm a thief, I'm a thief. And that thief goes on forever, but it lands on a C. Okay? And those who don't read music, just trust me or turn to the person next to you who's not, turn to somebody who's nodding, okay? Uh, lands on a pitch C. And then finally, one last example of this C-ness. When she talks about all the different people she's been, okay? She's been Mary, C-sharp. She's been Martine, B-D. She's been Maggie. Throughout this whole section, she keeps avoiding C, which is Marnie, as she gives all her alternate names that she has assumed over time. And we could go on and on, but we won't with examples of this. Um, Whenever she seems to have self-realization, she lands and emphasizes on C. When she sings about running away from herself, I'm going to run, 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 she sings Ds and Bs and B flats and C sharps, and, but not C, okay? Assuming I've convinced you that Marnie is associated with the pitch C, 
and that this allows for various coded meanings in the opera, signaled either by its conspicuous absence, avoidance, or by its presence, the question may, remains why C? Why not another pitch on the piano? Is C serving as a cipher, the blank, neutral key with no sharps, no flats, indicating Marnie's blank character that can be redrawn as necessary after she commits a crime? Or is C the pure key, the key, the central pitch, the um, pointing to the ultimate innocence, her ultimate innocence, and signaling her essence or her central core identity. It's not called middle C for nothing, right? Or perhaps C achieves the symbolic work of both sets of meanings throughout the opera. Now I've been pondering this for some time over the last month or two, and so the other day I decided to email Nico and ask what he thought. His response, which arrived in seven minutes, and he was in the middle of a Metropolitan Opera rehearsal, that's totally Nico Muley, uh, his response was, quote, yes, good observation. I hadn't thought about the sea, I must confess, but I celebrate your sleuthing. I always find much of this to be subconscious. The little boy, of course, had to get that pitch from somewhere. This raises a much larger question. Should we even ask the composer? Who cares what the composer thinks? Just go with the musicologist. The problem is Muley is a great writer and speaker himself, a musicologist of his own works, making my job a little more complicated. Rather than adopting abrupt stylistic shifts to represent Marnie's duplicitous multiplicity, Muley and the librettist Nicholas Wright created a quartet of shadow Marnies who are dressed and made up to look like multiple Marnies on stage. These four vocalists sing in an early music style without vibrato, sounding, as Muley put it, quote, like a warped recording of the Talus scholars singing a single chord from an obscure Tudor motet. I told you, he's good at good. The shadow Marnies mo most often seem to amplify or project Marnie's innermost thought, though they occasionally do serve as a Greek chorus as well, commenting on her. Commenting and in one case stirring up the larger chorus to sing in an aggressive, accusatory style. I don't think the shadow Marnies are always on Marnie's side. Muley's fascination with Renaissance vocal music and English church music is well known and has shaped so much of his vocal music. As in Two Boys, one scene in this opera actually calls for church music, heard during the funeral, and Muley clearly relished the opportunity. At a particularly powerful, climactic moment near the very end, the quartet of Shadow Marnies expands to include all of the female members of the chorus who assume the figures of Marnie's past aliases.
in the passage, the this is much older sounding choral music writing. Again, it goes back to Monteverdi to have those intense dissonances, <clears throat> the notes rubbing up against each other and then relaxing um, for what <clears throat> is really a psychological, emotional climax of the entire opera. The moment when this multiplicity of Marnies, which were just four shadow Marnies, all the female members of the chorus appear dressed up as a, a Marnie um, in a similar costume um, as though they're representing all these different names that they are singing about. And the, the, the psychological moment <clears throat> is Marnie's realization that her entire life has been shaped by a lie. This feeling of guilt that her mother had thrown at her uh, for her baby brother's death, which she ultimately was not responsible for. Spoiler alert, you'll have to find out what Marnie's mother was up to back in the day. Um, but at this moment, it's sort of expanding on that psychological realization that the liar was you. The mother was the liar, right? Marnie's been a liar throughout her life, but the ultimate lie was the one that she had been told since being a child that she had committed this horrible deed. And I don't know exactly what to make of it, but the emphasis on C with the word you, is this somehow ultimately connecting her and her mother? If you've read the novel, you know that this is a much bigger deal in the novel than it is in the opera or in the movie. This question of Marnie wondering, will she become like her mother? Uh, a very sexually active woman, right? Will she become like her mother, something she's avoided all her life without knowing why? Um, and I feel like psychologically it's in the music here, even though dramatically it's not made a big deal of in the libretto um, of the opera. In my final section, <clears throat> I'd like to pull back to consider this opera's general menacing musical mood that's punctuated by passages of sheer beauty. And then I also want to focus on the depiction of the male characters and how they musically uh, can be heard to surround Marnie. The world of the office, populated by subservient females and dominated by male bosses, is depicted sonically by Muley in the very first scene. In Two Boys, for those who uh, heard that opera uh, some years ago, Muley musically depicted the density of the web communication in some astonishingly dense choral music. He stated back then that he found it particularly thrilling to, quote, compose the ecstatic language of overlapping voices, almost as if you're seeing the entire kind of aggregate of all the things people are saying on the internet at once. That's what he was trying to capture in that very dense choral music, sort of the hum, the bee-like hum of the hive of the internet.
In the opening scene of Marnie, however, we hear an older form of communication density of telephone conversations and office chatter. But the bits that they're saying, it's everything from um, could you please hold the line to oh, I like your nails to what are you doing on Monday, the kind of office chatter but also telephone chatter of a lot of secretaries working in this um, mid-century office um, uh, setup. I think it's kind of interesting to compare bubbling density about communication, right? The sound of the web in Two Boys, and with this sort of throwback sound, which is a little slower, it's a little less uh, active because it's supposed to be telephone communication and office chatter from the late uh, 1950s. That similar textural density that we just heard is achieved in the choral music for a later scene held at a bar in the opera as everyone orders drinks and Muley actually introduces some aleatoric writing in the score. He writes you know, to the chorus, pick your own drink names or sing a certain number of times. You decide how many times to repeat it during this section of, um, of the opera. Muley's dense texture frequently resembles the music of Indonesian gamelan. A gamelan is an orchestra of gongs and xylophone-like instruments with a solo string and flute floating through the density. repetitive, very stratified, and contrapuntal with many interlocking musical lines. Debussy famously said uh, around 1900 that gamelan music's density and texture makes the polyphony of Palestrina and other European masters look like child's play. Um, in this opera, Marnie, I hear some Balinese gamelan influence in passages of hocketing woodwinds, interlocking parts at a very quick pace with new resultant melodic lines popping out, and in all that beautiful bell-like music that we hear at various points in the opera. Actually, lots of Muley's music has that bell-like sound, but in the opera we hear it particularly at a dinner party when the guests refer to twinkling silver clattering glasses, and the orchestra sort of becomes a bell-like gamelan sound. 
However, much of the rest of the music in this opera is more suggestively and even romantically ominous and tense. As he put it, in composing this, Muley aimed to create an obliquely menacing atmosphere. Muley has also stated that in the opera, no character is unambiguously good or bad. We should keep this in mind as we now turn our attention to the two principal male characters, uh, Mark and his brother, Terry. In this opera, register is expressive through its meaning, though its meaning can be um, ambig ambiguous. Early in Act Two, Mark attempts to make headway with Marnie, offering to bring her horse to his property and pointing to the beautiful meadow outside their home. His goal is to convince her to seek help from a psychiatrist, hoping that this will improve their marital relationship. In this passage, he's trying to convince her. As he sings of the distance between them, his voice goes higher in register, expressing his longing, his vulnerability, his sincere desire for intimacy with Marnie. The moment when he turns his discussion toward his plans, here's what I'm going to do about it, what should I do, I'm going to do something, his strategy for dealing with the situation, we hear instead low brass, specifically his trombone and even a bass trombone line, and his voice goes lower in register, the lower register marking his turn toward a more aggressive approach. Everything's high, bell-like. Now, what can I do? Low register, trombone. striking use of musical register is associated with the character Terry, Mark's lecherous and somewhat outcast brother, who is played by a countertenor. Muley has referred to Terry's twisted character as marked by creepiness. There are hints that he is a sexual predator and that he maliciously moved to trap Marnie. Here, near the end of the opera, Terry seems simultaneously threatening threateningly obsessive, and angelically comforting, singing somehow both in a creepy, sinister, um, obsessive, and threatening way, but also somehow angelic at the same time. The ambulance is leaving. Go with Mark. Wherever you are, Dissonance, all the way back to Monteverdi. To free you from your love. 
Um, I love the way that Muley is matching this kind of confusing text, word by word, line by line. I'm not sure, is Terry actually helping her? Or is he a sadomasochistic guy who's going waiting to see her torn apart by the hounds of truth, right? And musically, we're getting these moments of intense dissonance and sort of a biting, nasty sound, and then this beautiful sound. Um, also, this use of the countertenor or the very high tenor voice reminds me of operas of Benjamin Britten. As a musicologist who has focused a good deal on 20th century opera, I am particularly intrigued by the influence of Britten's works on Muley. The themes of guilt, innocence, lost, and adolescence are very prominent in Britten's operas. If you know The Turn of the Screw, Billy Budd, The Church Parable, The Prodigal Son, all the way to Death in Venice, um, Britten's last opera. Likewise, the boy soprano voice is prominently featured in many of Britain's works, as it was in Two Boys, and, <coughs> excuse me, in the role of Jake, the boy who leads Brian, the central character, astray. And it's here in the little boy in Marnie, whose voice serves as, as purity, as a companion to Marnie's mother, and perhaps as the ghost of the murdered baby brother. In some sections, Terry's countertenor voice reminds me of the dangerous countertenor and high tenor characters in Britain's opera, operas, uh, Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream, Quint in The Turn of the Screw, The Tempter in The Prodigal Son. Conversely, the boy soprano voice seems to signal innocence in much of Britain and in Muley's Marnie, as well as the boy character in Debussy's Peleas de Melisande. Furthermore, Casting Terry as a countertenor somehow seems to resonate with the fact that in Hitchcock's movie, this role is recast as Mark's sister-in-law, who has the hots for Mark and who would like to replace her deceased sister as the next Mrs. Mark Rutland. So I was quite confused about Terry and why he's a countertenor, and I did the natural thing any 21st century musicologist would do. I texted Nico. I asked Muley about his decision to cast Terry as a countertenor, and rather than emphasizing the negative associations that I just emphasized, Muley responded, quote, As for the countertenor, he is the only person in the opera, aside from the boy, who really tells Marnie, her, Marnie the truth. And that pairing comes straight from Britain. Oh, I was right about something. All tenors in opera are purely sex antagonists, as befits their shouty tessitura, whereas I find an otherworldly probity with the countertenor. He sees through her. Additionally, I wrote it for my friend, Eestin. <laughs> so there's a lot packed in there. <laughs> and um, I, I can't quite tell, you know, interpretively where I can pin down this choice of character and voice other than ultimately, like Mozart, Muley has particular singers in mind, right? Isabel Leonard, he said he really wanted, he's glad she's singing it at the Met. Thus, we are left with further ambiguity. The male characters prove both menacing and even malicious, while also appearing to have some sincere sympathy for Marnie. What about the ending? Spoiler alert. This general ambiguity is carried right through to the very end of the opera, the final notes of the opera. As the police prepare to lead Marnie away in handcuffs, Mark declares that he will wait for her and asks whether she will come back to him. Her reply, 
I'll be here for myself. That's all I know for now. Perhaps her strongest statement of self-realization, and not surprisingly, set to a melodic line emphasizing and landing on the I'll, I'll be here for myself, myself. That's and let for now, all I know for now, she lands on, on C at that point. She then sings, I'm free. She sings, I'm free, and she repeats the words, I'm free. She sings, I'm free. That is a big leap, a dissonant interval, right? I'm free. Then on I'm, she remembers the pitch C. I'm free. So that's not dissonant. That's nice, right? That's all consonant. But then the final vocal interval of the entire opera is a seventh. Right? Another dissonant interval that does not resolve. It doesn't get up to the F or doesn't resolve anywhere. It just has that hanging at the very end of the opera. In the end, Muley deliberately avoids a big climax, a sense of clarity and closure. Instead, we hear aspiration and pain in that melisma on free and in those expressive dissonant intervals, forward-looking leaps. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was W. Anthony Shepard exploring the dark drama of Nico Muley's Marnie. If you want to keep up to date on all of the Met Opera Guild's ongoing lectures and community programming events, visit us at metguild.org and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. You'll get special announcements, information about new podcast episodes, and the inside scoop on all our happenings here at Lincoln Center. We'll be back with you next week for an episode on Boito's Mephistophele. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.